Well, good evening. Why don't we head back to, head back to our seats and uh, open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. We were joking about this is the Italian prophet, Malachi, but it's Malachi. If that's your first time hearing it, you're welcome. So. <laughs> Otherwise, it's an old joke. Okay. <clears throat> so we are, we're talking about the book of Malachi. And um, so this is the last bo- book in the Old Testament. It's the last um, work of the Minor Prophets. And some have suggested that the name Malachi was written, or the book was written anonymously, and the, the name Malachi is actually just a title because the word Malachi means my messenger or the Lord's messenger. But all of the prophets' books all say, you know, all lead in with uh, the name of the author in the introductory heading of the book. So we're, we're looking at the book of Malachi, so there's no reason for us not to believe that this isn't written by Malachi. Um, And so as we think about the timing of this book, uh, there are some things that have gone on in in the book, or the timing as we look into the scriptures. We're going to see a lot of things that point us to the fact that they were having a lot of problems in in the time of Malachi, which align with Nehemiah and Ezra. So Nehemiah comes back and he rebuilds the walls, and this is all happening about a hundred years after the time of Zechariah and Haggai. And so when you look at this, so they've been in the land for about a hundred years, and the big issue that comes up is they start getting into complacency, just doing the things that God wants them to do just out of rote, you know, that kind of thing. And what I've found is that if you look at the the different prophets of the Old Testament, God usually isn't bringing a prophet along when things are going really well. He's He's bringing a prophet into the mix when things have gone haywire and he's got something he needs to tell them. And that's the case here with the book of Malachi. So we're talking about uh, probably in the 430s, 420 BC, we're, we're seeing this happen. And Malachi sets forth a prophecy in a form of a dispute. So he talks about what God says, then he says what the people are saying. So God knows the heart of man, and he's saying back, and this is what you're saying back about God. And then God gives a response to those issues that are going on. So there's six different issues that are brought up here. Willful sin towards God by the priests and the people of the land. So before we get started, I'll just pray and we'll dig into Malachi. So Lord, we thank you once again. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you will speak to us through your word tonight. And um, God, would you just empower us to walk in obedience to you when we when we hear your word, Lord, we know that you want us to study this tonight, and we just pray, God, that you will um, just reveal your will to us as we look at this book, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And so we uh, let's pick up verse 1 of um, Zechariah chapter 1. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, In what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have, not, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, 
and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So the first thing that God brings up, this burden of the word of the Lord against um, to Israel by Malachi, and he begins addressing the biggest problem that they had at the time. And the people were facing, they wanted to know, you know, he wanted them to know that he loved them. That was the biggest issue that I think any of us need to be worried about. Does God love us? Is that what's going on? And they believed that God didn't love them. They were looking at their situations. And people in our day and age can look at the love of God and say, God doesn't love me, but God is the definer of what love actually means. And so we can't look to other sources. If it's, if it's what God, you know, God didn't give me what I wanted, and so therefore he doesn't love me, is not the case for how we would look at whether God loved us or not. You know, when somebody loves you, when you know that somebody loves you, they actually have an opportunity to speak into your life. You know, you may be too willful and too prideful to listen to them, but if you know that they love you, they can speak correction into your life. And so I believe that God starts out right here saying, I want to demonstrate to you that I love you. And that's the first thing he gets started with. The people were so distant from God. They'd gotten so involved in just complacency and doing. We're going to find out as we look through here. They're just going through the motions of religion that they didn't know who God was. They didn't know he loved them. They couldn't see it. So we can question the love of God if we don't understand what his love is. And, you know, when we look through Scripture, this is one of the things that I went to. I'm like, well, how does God define love? You know, we, a lot of us would go to 1 Corinthians 13. You can see, kind of see the effects of what love looks like. But I think the biggies for me was that greater love has no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friend, right? And then God showed his love. He demonstrated his love towards us. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So we have, so if dying for a friend is a sign of love, no, no greater love than that, and then what happens when God dies for those who are his enemies? <laughs> I mean, that's even more love. So we see, we know, when we doubt the love of God, all we have to go back to is the cross. That's the greatest definition for love for us. And for them, the definition was the same thing. Look what he says. He says that they were chosen. They were chosen. They were chosen by God. So we, as Christians, we do the choosing. God does the choosing. He's choosing us as well. It's the same thing, right? The love doesn't always give you what you want, but it gives you what you need. You know, when we look at the sacrificial love of Christ on the cross, there's things that I see in the love of Christ that demonstrate his love, that what love should look like. We have, it's very personal, it's sacrificial. It's selfless. Um, you know, we even see parental love. You know, the parental love of God is one that, you know, has discipline along with it. So we, we know that love doesn't always just give us what we want. So if we understand God's love, then we can look at this. And what they were looking at is what their... Um, the thing that he tells them is that he loved Jacob. They were part of the tribe that came out of Jacob, right? That's, that's who he loved. And so that love was a, an electing love. He chose one, but he didn't choose Esau, right? So he has these two nations he's talking about. The one he loved was Jacob. And I don't think we can take that too lightly because what came along with his choosing of Jacob were all of the things that went along with, um, with that. There was blessing that was going to come. God was going to dwell with that group of people. 
That was a completely different thing than what he did with Esau, right? His blessing was poured out upon them. It didn't matter what they did, how they acted. God's love and blessing was going to be upon them. And yet with Esau, and he's talking about Edom as well. So you've got two kind of ways when we look at this passage that says that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. There's two things that we see here. You can either look at the brothers and say, well, God's love for Jacob was so great that the love he had for Esau made it look like hatred, you know, the, the, the difference there. But you've also got that he's talking about the different groups of people. Edom had come out. Well, God hated what Edom was doing. Their, their love of the world, they hated Israel, and they're fighting against Israel, and they thought that they could also come back. You know, God, God had said, you're not going to come back, but they claimed here in these verses that they thought they were going to come back. They were going to be able to make it back, but God says they may believe that, but they're not going to come back. So God restored Jacob. He restored the people of Israel back into the land, but he wasn't restoring the people of Edom. No matter what they tried to do, they were going to be taken out. So they had this great privilege as well to be the people, Jacob, the Israel, had this great privilege to be the people who would declare God to the rest of the world. That electing love of God was so good, so great, that that should have been the thing that they, when they look back on life, God could have told them anything. Listen, I've brought you back to the land. I've been good to you. I've brought provision to you, but he didn't do any of that. He said, I've chosen you. So it's, it is an amazing thing to be chosen by God. And that was the thing that he points to first so that he can begin this through Malachi to tell them all the other things that he wants to do in their life. But they had to know that God loved them. And, um, you know, how do we, you know, a lot of times when we, when we don't think that God loves us, this is, we were talking about it on uh, Saturday with the men's group. We were just talking about when, what the psalmists did they were writing down the goodness of God. That's one of the things that we look at. And when you're having this doubt of whether God loves you, whether he cares for you, I mean, are you going back and writing down, keeping track of the goodness of God in your life is, is a crucial thing to keep your mind set on not looking at circumstances, but looking at the truth of what God is in your life. And so he wanted, the first thing that God wanted to do was tell them that he loved them. And that's the first thing he addresses. And then we pick up in verse 6. He begins to address these other things that come out. Now he can speak into these issues in their life. It says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, In what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, In what way have we defiled you? by saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. But now entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Who is there then even among you who would shut the doors? so that you would no, not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it 
in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the stolen, the lame, the sick, thus you bring an offering. Shall I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So the second issue that they were dealing with was they were dishonoring God's name. And when you look through this passage, there, he says at least five times he mentions my name. The priests were to be men who were exemplary, lived these exemplary lives, obeying, teaching the law, and yet God's name, and that's referring to his character, his reputation, was no longer being honored, no longer being reverenced by the priests. Their response is, in what ways are we, have we despised your name? Uh, you know, but if you look at Leviticus, what God had said, any blemished animal was not to be offered, it wasn't supposed to be accepted. So they're bringing these defiled animals, and the priests are looking at it and going, yeah, we'll take that, that's good, yeah, we'll take that in. So they had taken what was sacred, become complacent about the offerings that they were taking before God. And their actions were pointing to that these things weren't that important. It, God doesn't care about this, you know. So you can see the reputation of God is now being, uh, it was demonstrating to people that God doesn't care, he's not really that holy, he doesn't need these types of things. So God's reputation was at stake, and God was calling them out on it. They were a nation that was supposed to be a nation that was proclaiming the, what God was like to the, to the other nations, and yet even in, amongst themselves, they had become unbelievably complacent in doing this worship. And this is such an interesting passage to me because I think God kind of lays out here what the issue is and why complacency had happened in their life and how to combat complacency. Is, as we look down through it, one of the, the first thing that I see is he's saying to them, you got to know who I am. If you want to fight complacency, know who I am. He says, he's a father, he's a master, he's worthy of reverence and honor. And just like any human authority, the law set up said, honor your father and mother, honor your masters when they're over you. That's the type of thing you were supposed to do. So they were accustomed to showing honor to those people. And God, wasn't he worthy of more honor than the human people? So, so he also says in verse 14, I'm a great king whose name is to be feared among the nations. He's the giver of life, sustainer of life. He had brought them back, you know, the remnant back to the land. He was holy, righteous. He was their provider, and he's our provider. You know, everything that we have is from the Lord. Not trusting in riches, trusting in God, that's what we need to have in our life. And as we surrender our will to his, he's going to lead us in paths of righteousness. That's what he's going to do. So as we think about the first thing that we need to know is to know who God is, I really want to encourage you, study the attributes of God. You know, when you begin to see how awesome God is, we sang a bunch of songs, a bunch of, what an awesome God, when you start delving into how merciful he's been, you know, and all those things, how wise he is, it'll start taking away that complacency in our hearts to say, wait, I'm serving an amazing God here. And so that's going to begin the process. The second thing that I think he points to here is recognition of sin. You know, um, when we disobey God, he's, he's calling it evil. God calls it evil here. Disobedience is so commonplace in our world. People just accept sin in any form. Uh, it's justified in people's minds. You know, well, it was just a small sin, whatever. 
And when you think about the word evil, what does that conjure up in your mind? Well, this same word for evil was used a couple other times in Scripture. One is um, the word that was used to describe every, the state of man before the flood, when every imagination of the thoughts of, uh, of his heart was evil continually. I mean, we, we all look at that and we go, it must have been bad at that time for God to wipe everyone out. The men of Sodom said they were wicked. That's the same word he uses for evil here. So we look at those two situations, we go, that was the worst of the worst, and yet God looks at the sin they were doing about bringing what we would, you know, what these people were thinking, oh, it's not that big a deal, bringing a corrupt sacrifice. And God's saying, that's evil, what you're bringing before me. So this isn't something that God takes lightly. He doesn't take sin lightly. And they were, it's so interesting, in verse 9, they're coming before the Lord, and he's, they're seeking God's favor, even in the midst of all this. Like, we're going to bring you to this trash, and then we want your favor, God. Would you please pour out your favor upon us? So they were so unaware of their sin, they couldn't recognize sin in their life, so they couldn't even see that they were walking in disobedience to God. So this is something that, honestly, we need to pray all the time in our own hearts. God, reveal sin in my life so that I, who wants to be doing having sin in their life, not, not being able to be revealed to us, asking God to show us if there's any wicked way in our hearts. That's going to help us with not being complacent. We, we see sin. We see it in our life. And then I, he wants us to deal with it. Verse 10, he was looking for somebody to just shut the doors and not allow him to even bring these anymore. Can somebody just stop the whole thing? Just take some sort of authority, stop the whole thing. Stop these offerings, these vain things. Because half-hearted devotion to the Lord, God says, is not devotion at all. He doesn't, he doesn't want half-hearted devotion. God wanted the sin dealt with. He wanted everything shut down. The whole reason he sent Malachi this prophecy is because he's like, this is a problem that needs to be dealt with. And so that's what he's doing. So God denounces the activity, tells them he takes no pleasure in their offerings. And it's a sad state when God is saying, I'm not taking any pleasure in the things that you're doing. God hates hypocrisy. And God wants our best in service to him. That's, that's what he's calling for here, just taking, dealing with sin. And so... I see here, I see a remedy for all this when he gets down into verse 11. The remedy is to practice the presence of God in our life, right? We're going we're gonna to deal with sin, and then we're going to practice the presence of God. It says, from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, his name is going to be great among the Gentiles. His name is great. It's going to be great. You know, are you going to recognize it? Are you going to practice the presence of God and know that God is great? He's working out a plan. God's doing this thing. And we have a privilege to be a part of this plan that he's proclaiming his greatness to the world. And he's revealing his heart and his word. What a pleasure it is to have God's word, have the ability to pray. And we have the Holy Spirit. I, I, don't, want to, I don't want you to think I'm going to muster up all this goodness in myself. When we're in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, you know, guiding, directing, working in our lives to help us in these areas. And so when we forget who God is, we start to become complacent in our walk. We lose focus on uh, serving God by his standards, and we slowly begin to act in contemptible ways towards the Lord. It's what had, ends up happening. And the priests had lost so much focus on why they were doing what they were doing, so they're just accepting it all. Verse 13 tells us, look at what happened to them. It's, service to the Lord had become a weariness to them. Like, that's what it was. And this can, be, this can happen in our lives, right? It can become wearisome when we lose focus, when, we, when, we, when we're doing things for no reason, 
We, we're not focusing on God and who he is. It can become a wearisome thing to just a ritual. You know, do, do we wake up on Sunday and I'm like, oh, well, I guess I better go to church because that's what I'm, gonna, I'm supposed to do. And we, we talk about it in Zechariah, but it's the same deal, right? You know, is it a weariness? When ritual replaces the purpose for why, why we're doing things, you know, when God instituted these methods for a purpose, the reason he was bringing the sacrificial system was all pointing to this great sacrifice that was to come. This was a weighty process, and it, it was showing the sacrifice that needed to be done for sin. And God saw that there was no need to accept a half-hearted offering. Devotion to God is, you know... It's, it's both a duty and a delight when you think about it. You know, there, there's things you can't, I mean, there's a delight in serving the Lord, but you can't sit on your couch and eat bonbons and expect that the Lord, that was for Tim, you sit on your couch and eat bonbons and, and expect that God is going to uh, just do a work in your life. Like you can't watch Netflix all night long and say, well, how, how is my heart in tune with the Lord? Like, why is he not, why am I not growing closer to the Lord? Well, if you're not spending any time with him. That's not going to happen. There's a, there's a duty to following the Lord, but it becomes a pleasure. We understand the love of God towards us. We are desiring to know him. So as, as we think on that, it's only by Christ we can even approach the throne of grace. In verse 14, he brings up this other issue that, that God had actually cursed the one who had the right sacrifice in his flock, and he took a vow to bring it, and then he brings rubbish. He brings the terrible thing. Like, he already, he had the gift he was supposed to give. He knew he was supposed to bring, and he brings something lesser. I mean, you can't, you can't think about it without just saying, you know, are we bringing our best to the Lord? Is that, is that what's happening? We're bringing him the first, the best into, in our life as we come before the Lord. So it's important to realize that God is always aware of our attitudes, our motivations for why we're doing what we're doing. And, you know, that I always, my mind always goes back to Psalm uh, 19 and saying, you know, wanting the, not just the words of my mouth, but the meditation of my heart to be pleasing to the Lord. And that, that's really the thing that, you know, you, your mind's got to be set on the Lord and say, okay, what am I doing? What, what is God doing? Search me, God, and know me. And so we get to chapter 2, and he takes his eyes. He starts to, so the people were do, doing these offerings, and the priests were accepting them. And then he goes after the priests, and he says, and now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned, away, turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. God has some serious rebukes for the priests. Um, their actions were not giving glory to God's name. 
Um, they were misrepresenting the character of God to the people. And because of this, God says he was going to curse their blessings. And he says, yes, I have cursed them already. And if you go back to Deuteronomy 28, you should, well, I'm not going to go there because there's so much in there. But Deuteronomy 28 just lays out all these blessings for what the people were going to do. If they walked in obedience to the Lord, there were these blessings that were just going to be amazing. I'll kind of hit some highlights. But they were going to be prominent over the other nations. That was one of the things. They were going to have, um, they were going to be a holy people set apart. Uh, they were going to be feared by the nations. There would be prosperity with family, food, farm, livestock. There was going to be rain at the appropriate times. I mean, it was going to be blessing beyond blessing. And the Lord was, their, their leadership among the people and nations, they would be one of the top, they would be the top nation going on. But you can tell, here we are, we're 100 years out from, uh, they had they'd really gone off base. They weren't where they needed to be. God was, uh, God was not blessing them. He says he's already cursed them. They're, they're not getting what they, um, what they should have been getting from the blessings of the Lord. And he says here that he also will spread refuse on their faces. So the, the sacrifices, the animals, you know, they, they had dung in them, that sort of thing. And that was supposed to be taken, taken outside the camp and burned. And basically he's saying he's going to spread that refuse on them. He's going to take them out of being able to be the priests. They were no longer fit to serve as priests. God's saying he's going to strip them of their ability of the priestly office because they were treating it with contempt. So God would remove them from office. And, you know, the, the real issue was the priests were completely disregarding the sacrifices, uh, the sacredness of the office and the duty of the office. And he brings up this reference to Levi. And when he starts laying it out, he says, this is what it was originally supposed to be, the way it was supposed to be. The tribe of Levi was faithful to God. And if you go back to Mount Sinai, they were the tribe that, went and killed everybody. They, were, they showed such zeal for the Lord that God made them the, uh, the tribe, the priestly tribe. And now we've got a nation where the nation doesn't have zeal for God, and neither do the priests. They'd all lost their zeal for God. So the, the Levites historically were the leaders at keeping the covenant, and he's coming to the priests saying, you're not doing any of that. You're no longer leaders in righteousness. They were accepting worthless sacrifices. They had made super a whole bunch of compromises. They were no longer acting in the character of Levi from Deuteronomy 33, if you want to look that up. So they were the guardians of the covenant, Levi. And not only that, but they were causing the people to stumble and turn away from the law. This is what they were doing. But look, look at the beautiful things if you look through 4 through 7. The, the covenant was one of life and peace. What a beautiful covenant God gave. It was given to him so that he would fear the Lord and that's what he did, you know. He understood. He's like, oh, this is, this is a good thing. It's life and peace. And he feared the Lord. He revered the name of God. That's what Levi did. It resulted in him declaring truth. When he revered the name of God, he declared, declared truth. And Levi showed no injustice. He walked in peace and equity, verse 6. He was a person who turned people away from iniquity, not caused people to stumble. What, what an amazing thing the, that uh, he's talking about here with Levi. And these are the characteristics of a good priest. The priest was even the messenger of the Lord of hosts, he says in verse 7. So when I look to the scriptures, everybody turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I haven't made you jump around too much, but if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Today we're called to be a holy priesthood. So we have this view of the priests in the Old Testament but God has called us to be a holy priesthood. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5. 
He says, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we jump down to verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what we're doing now as, as priests. God has rich blessings for us today, and we take our priestly role into the world and proclaim these, offering praises to God and declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. I, so many times I feel like, and I've said this before, that, that we as Christians treat the gospel like it's bad news. We have to lay on somebody, oh, this is, this is actually, it's good news. You know, we're, we're proclaimers of good news in, in the people's lives. So God allows us to be a part of that amazing work as, as his priesthood that's going out in the world, representing God to the people. That's what we've been, been given this opportunity. How amazing. Verse 8 and 9, they said they were disobeying the law themselves. They were causing people to stumble by their walk. They were showing partiality in the way they applied the law. It only applied to some people and not to others. It's truly a sad rebuke on the, on the priests. Um, and when the ones who are the spiritual leaders fall and stumble, the, the spiritual state of everybody suffers. And you know, that's, you know, so you may look at pastors or elders or whatever in the church and go, well, those people need to really know God's word. They need to be walking with them. But if you have influence over anybody in your life, <laughs> you have a responsibility to talk into their life. I mean, whether you're teaching little kids or you're teaching your family members or you're a father or you're a mother and you're speaking into somebody's life, oh my goodness, we have such a responsibility to show them who God is, who's the God we serve. So we, you know, the scripture speaks to those who are teachers are going to be held accountable, they're going to be held to a higher standard. We have been given God's word and to know it and to be able to speak into people's lives. But God doesn't take it lightly when those who influence others lead people astray. I mean, that's, that's something we say, okay, Lord, help me to be a person who speaks into people's lives and shows you to them. We're all going to screw up. I, I don't want to take it away that we're going to have, we're going to be perfect people, but God, you know, are we living a life in obedience to him? Are we drawing near to him? Are we dealing with sin in our lives? And that's what God's calling them to. So verse four, or uh, verse four, issue four, he starts talking about divorcing Jewish wives and marrying foreign wives. So Malachi now turns his attention to the nations as a whole. Verse 10 of uh, Malachi, he says, Malachi 2, he says, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherous, treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in his ruin in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But, he, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, 
and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So God's dealing with something that he's calling treachery. He calls it treachery among the people. God hated what they were doing, and the men were divorcing their wives, and uh, wives of their youth, their Jewish wives, and they're marrying these foreign wives. And there's two aspects to, to this issue, the problem that they were having. First was the divorce. You know, divorce is an attack against a holy institution that God has. Um, you know, he, he makes the statement that we're created in the image of God. He is not, aren't we all created? God created us. Created in the image of God means that each of us has worth, worthy of honor, and divorce strips that honor and respect away. And God says in verse 11 that marriage is a holy institution that God loves, something that we shouldn't enter lightly and we shouldn't end it lightly. It's not something to get into. That It's a unique holy institution that he established. Therefore, he, decide, he def defines what marriage is and its purpose. And marriage is beautiful when the man and the woman are both uh, living and abiding in the roles that God has established for them. You know, I mean, I can't say that every moment of my marriage has been a beautiful thing, but we're working on it, right, baby? So, <laughs> but since it's a covenant, it shouldn't be broken. Well, I told Rachel before we got married, I, like the day before, I said, this is it. Here's your chance. Get out now. You either kill me or we don't get married because we're not ending this thing. Like, that was, we went into it with that attitude. So she hasn't killed me yet. <laughs> so... But marriage can be a beautiful thing. But the reason it's treachery, that God sees it as treachery, is when you enter marriage, we become vulnerable, we commit ourselves to one another, and um, to put a person away, or divorce them, doesn't change the fact that you're now one. You are one. And so to marry another is to be unfaithful to the one you initially married. And we really see the heart of God in marriage. Um, God's plan for marriage is essential oneness between the husband and the wife. And this oneness leads to an environment where godly offspring are going to flourish. You know, that's what, he, that's what he's looking for. And it can't be clearer than in verse 16, he says, God hates divorce. And I think one of the reasons God hates divorce is just because the, it's devastating. It rips everybody apart. Nobody comes out unscathed when, when divorce is in the mix. And God hates it. Now, there are grounds in the New Testament um, for divorce, uh, Matthew speaks of it, that if there's adultery there or if you've got an unbelieving spouse who decides to desert the believing spouse, there's divorce there. If you're, if you're in harm or there's something going on, there's abuse going on, I would say get out of those situations. But divorce is, is brutal. It, it covers one's garment with violence, he says here. And this is kind of a reference to the, uh, the at the time, the marriage ceremonies, what the husband would do, he would lay a garment over the the wife, showing a sign of protection, lay the garment on him, and now it's being ripped away. You're ripping away that garment. And so the protection is being taken away in that relationship. The second issue that was leading to trouble was the marrying of the foreign wives. So they're not only divorcing, but they're now marrying foreign wives. And when foreign wives enter the mix of Israel, we always know the issues that came up. You know, Solomon is a classic example, bringing in wives, bringing in what you end up getting drawn away from God, and this is why you know God says, "Don't be unequally yoked to an unbeliever." That's the kind of thing that will happen. It's going to draw you away. It's going to lead to all these issues because ultimately, if you've married somebody who's not a Christian, you're 
you're following two different gods. One, they may not follow any god, but they're following a god, whatever that god is. It's, you've got different ideas, different directions that you're heading, and there's no way that that's going to work. He says, take heed to your spirit. He uses it twice in this section. It's a call back to, to not let marriage be about the feelings that you're having, but you know, dwelling in the spirit, knowing what God has for you. And so we get to the fifth issue here. The people begin to question God's justice. And verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, In what way have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? So they were actually they were questioning why God was allowing evil to prosper. Um, where is the justice of God? And this questioning God's justice was a wearisome to the Lord. <laughs> You know, if, if they thought about their own lives, they had forgotten they weren't obeying the law. You know, they weren't obeying the law of God. They were bringing corrupt sacrifices. They're divorcing their wives. And they're saying, where's the justice, God? Why aren't you, you going to bring that? Wondering where his justice was at. So they were unable to see their own sin in their own lives. You know, we, we tend to love justice when we can't see the sin and we can't see there's something wrong in our own lives. And that's what they were dealing with here. And we see people asking this today. I know I... I Every time there's a person I work with and, and every time there's something horrible happens in the world, she asks me about, uh, okay, where's your God in the middle of this type of thing? And I'm going, boy, we're living in <laughs> we're living in fallen world, and this is the expectation of what's going to happen in a fallen world. This is what goes on. But um, basically, when you think that way, when you have that mindset, you're saying, I know better than God. I wouldn't have handled it this way. I, I, I have a better plan than God has laid out. And so Israel was perceiving that God was fine with evil. You know, it was actually good in his sight, it says here. And they were claiming God is delighting in the wicked while they were questioning the love of God. So through Malachi, God begins to answer this question in chapter 3. He talks about two messengers that are to come. So verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So God says he's sending two messengers, one to prepare the way for the other messenger. He's got two messengers that are coming. And the first messenger we know is John, John the Baptist. Um, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all say this, that this applies to the to John the Baptist, and his role was one of the coolest roles that I think you could have, right? It's like, when you think about it, that ancient royal processions would send a messenger ahead to prepare the way for the king, get the obstacles out of the way, and that was John the Baptist. He's, he's preparing the way for the king. That's just a really cool. So the second, second messenger is the messenger of the covenant. That's Jesus Christ, and he fulfilled the demands of the first covenant in the way he lived it says, in whom you delight, he says here. He's saying, this is the one you delight in, this Messiah that's to come. And there was an aspect where uh, the Jews of that time were desiring this coming king to come. Yeah, he's the one we want. They delighted in the thought of the Messiah coming, but were completely oblivious to the judgment aspect that was of his appearing that was going to come. So when Christ returns the second time, he's going to come and judge the unrighteous and they really didn't want justice because they didn't understand their sin before God. And you get to verse 2. It says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? And so this is one of those near and far, we talked about it in Zechariah, where you get a little bit of the near prophecy, of Christ's initial coming, and then the second coming. Because who can endure the day of his coming, and this is speaking of his second coming. Who's going to be able to stand? Christ is coming, and he's going to bring great, great judgment. Jesus isn't going to come and look around and go, oh, this is all okay, this is all right. But look what he's going to be. He's going to be a launderer and a refiner. And these are metaphors of the judgment that's going to come. Launderer's soap, that purification process that will come with judgment. And we know that when Christ returns, it's going to be transforming. If you were here for Zechariah, there's this transforming thing that's going to happen where the Jews are going to come to Christ. There's going to be this purification. And you can't experience Christ without being affected. And the imagery continues with Jesus um, being seen as a refiner of silver. So the Lord knows what needs to be burned away in our lives and removing the dross like a, a jeweler purifies metals. And, you know, I, I was just thinking about that, what God does in our life. Um, you know, God knows what needs to be purified, what needs to be taken out of our lives, cleaned out of our lives. And it may be something that we've put in our lives that, um, you know, we're holding on to more than the Lord it can be painful. It can be relationships that are just bad relationships, and God takes them out of our life. But ultimately, what happened at the cross kind of took care of this type of thing. The blood of Christ brings forgiveness, sanctification. And when we see the priests here, that they were unacceptable, but God's messenger is going to make them acceptable once again. And the Lord, through Malachi, lays out these listing of the things that are going to be dealt with. He sees He's going to come against sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans and against those who turn away an alien. And these were all problems of the time. And they're going to be problems that we deal with today and they're problems that we're going to see in the end times. And God says those practices, all of those practices show that people don't fear the Lord. They don't fear God. They don't believe that anything's going to come. They're caught up in sin and don't believe God's ever going to deal with them. They don't fear him. So all this injustice and wicked God's wickedness, God says, will be dealt with. And the people were asking, you know, where's your justice, God? And God's answer to that was, it's going to be dealt with. And when he comes, you know, goes back to verse 2, who's going to be able to stand when he appears? And one of the big issues today, I think when we think about God and in our world thinks about God, is that God's like them, you know. You know, that he wavers and changes. God doesn't see sin the same way as he did in the Old Testament. I mean... I don't know how many conversations I've had where people say, well, that, that was in that old ancient book that you read, and God doesn't believe that same way anymore. And, they, you know, they, they don't know, you know God's wavering all over the place. He changes all the time, and yet God says, I'm not like you. I don't change. And that's a beautiful thing because <laughs> he says that uh, if I had changed, I would have burned you up, Jacob. You know, that, that, you know, we should be thankful that God doesn't change, that he's faithful. He's faithful. 
So he's calling them, and I, it's so amazing because I think you could almost go to every prophet of the Old Testament. God, God lays this out and says, return to me. We said it in Zechariah, the very first chapter of Zechariah, return to me and I'm going to return to you. And here in Malachi, he's once again, 100 years later, 100 years later, he says to the people again, just return to me. Return to me and I will return to you. Um, they wanted a response to their question. And they said, well, what way shall we return? Uh, they were unable to see their sin to even know that they needed to return. So why is God telling us to return? How have we not been with him? And we get to verse 8. It says, will a man rob God? And so he brings up, he brings up one instance where they needed to return to him. He says, uh, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. God says they're robbing me in robbing him in the tithes and offerings. You know, God required 10% of uh, grains, fruit, animals, money. It was all in Leviticus. He said, bring that in. That tithing was an act of worship, but also they were, you know, supporting the ministry so the, um, the Levites could, you know, the priests could continue to do the work of the Lord. If we think about it, God owns it all and said, here, you can use 90%. Just give me the 10% and, and I'm going to use it. But not giving what was God's, so he's saying, you're robbing me, that's mine, and you won't give it to me. He's now, he says, because of that lack of obedience in that area, a curse was upon the people. So this is one of the things, go back to Deuteronomy 28, you know, if you obey the Lord, flourishing, the land was going to flourish. They, so he says the whole nation was being robbed because of this. So they weren't having the produce that they were supposed to, it was supposed to be an abundance of crops that were promised through obedience. And he speaks to this devourer so that God had some devourer tearing up the crops. It didn't matter what they were going to do. And God says, this devourer, I'm going to take it away. If obedience would happen. So God was so insistent that um, he said to put him to the test in this area. You know, put him into the test. See if I won't do what I claimed I would do. You know, that's what God says here. This is the only time in Scripture that, that God says, go ahead and put me to the test in this area. And so... Um, this promise was leaked, linked to Deuteronomy 28, and God wanted them to trust him fully to provide. And their effort would be a blessing. It would, it, God wanted to pour out blessing. Now, I don't, I'm not going to stand up here and say, this applies to you today. You know, God is calling you. I think this was very specific for them at this moment in time that God is saying, put me to the test at this time. You're supposed to be obeying the law and you're not doing it. And I said I would do it. Put me to the test, and I will do it. Now, what does God tell us? Um, the effect of their obedience was going to result in the nation being a blessing to the people around them. They were going to see, that just be through this, the nations were going to see that God was their God, that there's something different about these things because they were walking in obedience and God was blessing them. So does God require tithing now? Well, I can tell you that uh, in the New Testament, tithing isn't emphasized. There's not this emphasis on it. 
2 um, Corinthians 9, Paul was gathering a collection for the Christians in Jerusalem, and he mentions that God loves a cheerful giver. So when we think about giving in the New Testament, it, it, I don't think 10% should be the bottom level. That should just be kind of like a starting point when we're thinking about giving to the Lord. God wants cheerful, generous, non-coerced givers. He doesn't want you giving because you feel coerced into doing it. God wants that. Typically, if you're a person who's generous, cheerful, not being coerced, then you have a heart that believes that God's going to continue to provide in your life. You're not going to be sitting there wondering, oh, I, if I give this. You know, God wants you to just trust him in this area. And, you know, giving gives you an opportunity to grow in reliance to, on, on the Lord. It really does. And so I think that's what, what God has for us is just don't look at 10%, but if you're not giving to the Lord, you know, that's something that I think you should talk to the Lord about and say, what do you want me to give? How do you want me to show this dependence? Am I going to worship money or am I going to worship the Lord? And just trusting in him to provide. So he gets to 13. He says, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it uh, that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed, for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. So that another issue that's happening in the hearts of the people is they were just basically saying, it. well, it's useless to serve God. We're not getting any, anything out of it. What good is it if the wicked are prospering and we're not prospering? So why should we obey his commands? And if they weren't getting anything out of it, you know, what was the point? And it may be that the wicked are going to prosper. They weren't seeing repercussions. That may be the case. But we know that God promises to deal with the wicked. And this goes back to them doubting the love of God. You know, why would these things happening? But if they're being coerced into serving the Lord, then, you know, they shouldn't be serving. They shouldn't be doing those things. If you start serving in a ministry to get something out of it, then there's, you're going to become discouraged. You're going to become disappointed first time anything comes your way. I was when I was a new Christian, well, I wasn't a new Christian, but newly married, Rachel and I moved to Pittsburgh at our old church. We did Awanas, and um, there's a children's ministry. And I was teaching the third and fourth year, fourth graders, boys. You want to talk about being discouraged. Um, <laughs> third and fourth grade boys, you know, it was a lot of Bible memorization, all these things. And, and I'm, you know, in my mid-20s, and I'm teaching these third and fourth grade boys. And it was every week, like, did anybody know any verses this week? You know, and it became discouraging because I wanted to see, I had visions of what was going to happen in there. You know, I wanted to be, I wanted to do this amazing thing in the lives of these kids. And I did it for a couple of years and said, these boys are never going to learn nothing. So I'm out, you know. And looking back on that, I went into the ministry for me. I didn't go into it because I was serving the Lord. I went into it for me. And so when you know, you meet, get met with discouragement when you go in and say, oh, this is all about me. Well, I was being a blessing in those kids' lives, and I didn't even know it, you know, and that's one of the things we, we teach the kids here. It's like, I don't care going down there to teach because I'm hoping the Lord's going to use it in some way. It may be a rough day. I don't know, but, you know, they came to a place. They heard about God. They saw people that loved them. You know, there, there's things like that. And, and so when we, when we minister, any ministry that you're in, you know, even if you're not the person who sweeps the floors and you decide to sweep the floor one week, you know who 
you blessed the person who normally sweeps the floors. That's who you blessed that week. You know, it's, it's all these things where we just say, Lord, I'm doing this for you, and I don't care about the results. I'm just going to serve the Lord. And they, would, they had gotten to the point it was like a weariness to, to serve the Lord, and that should never be the place in our hearts. Don't be discouraged. If we look around and start seeing other ministries, we'll, be, we'll become discouraged. We're having uh, the wrong motives when we serve the Lord. And so we get to 16. It says, then those, this is one of the most beautiful passages in Malachi. It says, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. How beautiful is verse 16. I mean, in all these issues that are going on in Malachi, there's this remnant that feared the Lord. They held God in awe. They worshipped him. <clears throat> they were different from those who were complaining about God. They listened uh, God listened and heard them when they had conversations about him. How, how amazing is that? That God is writing this down, whether it's a real book of remembrance. I don't think God needs a book, but putting a book of remembrance that God sees when we have conversations about him. I don't think he's got a book of remembrance of how many times I talked about sports with another Christian. He might, but <laughs> it might be a big book. But, you know, when we have conversation, when you're talking with a brother and sister in Christ, and you're like, oh my goodness, uh, let me tell you what the Lord talked to me today about. You know, just having that image of God listening in on that, being so pleased with what we're doing together and talking to one another, that he's, he's seeing these people who fear his name and who love him and meditate on him. What a beautiful picture that is. And so God sees these conversations. There's something to be remembered. And um, I don't know. It should just make us, encourage us to talk about those things. After you get done talking about what you're going to get at Owls, talk about what the Lord has done for you, you know, you could do to somebody else. So these conversations were life-giving and God-honoring. And those who are God's, he calls them his jewels, his special treasure. And God's going to spare those. And in the end, there's going to be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, those who serve the Lord and those who don't. And God's going to spare them from something. And we see it in chapter 4. So Malachi finishes out his prophecy with some final imagery and some final things to look for at the day of the Lord's ultimate return. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Behold, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them <coughs> neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So God says the day is coming, and all the proud and all who do wickedly are going to be destroyed by fire because those who fear, but for those who fear God's name, they're going to experience healing from the son of righteousness. 
And those who fear the Lord are likened to these stall-fed calves. And one of the great beautiful things about the, uh, the internet is that you can look at, you can look up all kinds of crazy things, but just thinking about the, uh, the stall-fed calf frolicking through, you, you know, you can go look at that. That's such a joyous image. And he's saying, you're going to be like those stall-fed calves jumping around, enjoying. What a beautiful, what a beautiful picture there. So the prophecy ends with a call for them to remember the law of Moses. They were still under the covenant, uh, the, uh, the law, right? The Old Testament saints, that was how the saints, they related to God and walked in obedience. That's, they used the law. And if you think about it, this is the last 400 years God's going to be silent. And he says, remember the law as he finishes us out. Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Elijah's going to come. And we know that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. But that was at Christ's first ministry. And then many commentators believe that Elijah is going to be one of the two witnesses that Revelation talks about. And that, that he's going to come right before the, this day of the Lord. And we see the work of Elijah that's going to happen. There's going to be restored relationships. Uh, the hearts of the children are going to turn to the faith of the patriarchs, the fathers who truly followed after God. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And that's an odd way to end the Old Testament. But uh, it's fitting for how the state of man has been. You know, early in creation, sin brought a curse. Uh, the ending in the Old Testament, there's a threat of a curse. And then Revelation 22.3 states that when Christ returns, there shall no, no more be a curse. There's going to be true restoration and healing is going to take place. So, I mean, Malachi, it's a book for today. I'll tell you what, um, you know, and just some things to think on. Are we submitting to God in all the areas of our life? Are we giving him our best? Are we taking our relationship with him lightly? Are we forgetting his goodness? Are we forgetting who he is? we become complacent in our walk and so much to think on and act on in our lives. But, but God loves his people. He wants his people to be in right fellowship with him. What a beautiful thing. The Holy Spirit's empowering us to grow, continue to grow in our lives. And so God's delighting in drawing his people unto him. So as we converse together about the glories of God, you know, the Lord is listening in on those conversations. What a beautiful picture. So, well, let's pray. So Lord, we just thank you so much <clears throat> for your, um, for your word and for the, your truth and for your goodness to it and that you are goodness to us and that um, you aren't uh, a God that changes, but that you, uh, you are long-suffering with us, Lord. And we just thank you for your mercy and uh, your love. And we just, uh, God, just thank you for this night. I pray that you will just bless us as we go out, Lord. May we, may we be that priesthood that's going out into our world, just demonstrating who you are into this uh, dark place, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.